A few weeks ago I had a couple of hours to kill before a flight from Edmonton, so I walked into a second cup for coffee in the Wi-Fi. Noticing the menu, it showed up none of their beverages contained high fructose corn syrup. It's likely something you've seen before, maybe on the label of something you pick up at the grocery store, maybe on another menu somewhere else. It's been a growing trend in food to take out high fructose corn syrup if it was there in the first place, or if it wasn't, to make sure buyers know it won't be there anytime soon. And then after that, just a few days later from that coffee shop visit, I watched this ad go along with the Super Bowl. Um, my king, this corn syrup was just delivered. That's not ours. We don't brew Bud Light with corn syrup. Miller Lite uses corn syrup. Let us take it to them at once. Bud Light's ad took their medieval storyline to the castle brewing Miller Lite and then up into the mountains to the Knights brewing Coors Light. Now this wasn't high fructose corn syrup they were talking about, it was just corn syrup, but clearly there was an effort there to make a connection between one that's been pushed to the brink of a hated commodity and trying to pick up on that connection with a different kind of corn syrup. I'm Andrew Campbell, and this is Food Bubble, where the question for this episode is what is corn syrup and what is high fructose corn syrup? We see so many places that don't contain one or both of them, but do you know what they actually are? How they're actually made? I didn't before I started down this path and picked up quite a little bit in terms of what it is and how different it is from regular sugar or other sweeteners, and just what our body does when we consume it. So, if you need to grab that beer, whether corn syrup was used or not, now's the time, and we'll get the answer right after this. Trillium Mutual Insurance is your ag insurer of choice in Ontario. They're farm insurance professionals who specialize in and understand Ontario agriculture, providing insurance solutions that are the best in the industry. We all know that insurance can be complicated, but does it have to be? Their real Ontario farm insurance brokers make it simple for you, providing the coverage you deserve. To find a broker partner near you, please visit their website, trilliummutual.com, and follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Trillium Mutual. Want to know more about where your food comes from in Canada? FarmFood360.ca gives you a 360-degree view of Canadian agriculture. There are dozens of videos featuring real Canadian farmers answering your questions about food, farming, and how it's all connected. You can even take virtual tours and see exactly what it's like to live and work on different Canadian farms. To learn more about Canadian agriculture, visit FarmFood360.ca. High fructose corn syrup arrived like a ray of hope into the world of food in the early 1970s. As the name suggests, it's corn syrup that has higher fructose levels than regular corn syrup, which is entirely made of glucose. That corn syrup has been around for the better part of a century, but there was a push for something sweeter, at least something that tasted more like sugar. That's at least according to Dr. John White, the head of his own technical research and consulting firm out of Illinois. John works with food and beverage manufacturers around the world, particularly with sweeteners like sugars and syrups. To set the stage for that, if you look at sugar production over the, uh, over the centuries, that it has grown predominantly in, in equatorial countries and these countries have been susceptible to uh, production upsets in, in sugar. 
Um, where do those upsets come from? They come from hurricanes, so weather instability, um, and they also come from political instability. Um, and if you were a manufacturer of a food or beverage in the United States and you were reliant on sugar, you would find that uh, over the span of uh, 20, 30, 40 years, you would have an upset in production somewhere along the line there that would, number one, limit your access to sugar, causing you to scale back your production or shut it down. And number two, you would find that the price of sugar um, spiked dramatically. And this was a this was a big problem for the food industry, which was growing um, growing rapidly um, over the last 50 years or so. And they were looking very hard for an alternative to uh, to sugar, to sugar cane based and sugar beet based sugar. And along comes the corn wet milling industry that says we've got all of this corn that we're producing and we're making some very good um, food ingredients but none of them are sweet enough to compete with sugar. If only we could find a way to make glucose sweeter, we would then be able to compete with sugar in soft drinks and ice cream and um, bakery, baked goods and so on. That's the why, John, but let's get back to the start, which actually isn't the syrup, but is that kernel of corn. Kernels of corn then, uh, have a hull around the outside, which is quite fibrous. And on the inside, um, you would find predominantly starch. So a corn kernel would be uh, 70 to 80% starch. So very high starch content. And the goal of, of the corn wet milling process is to separate the starch from the other components of the corn kernel. So principally, you're, you're separating the starch then from the germ, which is the, the, the tip or the pointy part of the corn kernel. There's also a considerable amount of protein, and that has to be also uh, separated out. So why do we want to get the, the starch out? Well, it turns out starch is a wonderful raw material, um, not only for making uh, a host of materials, um, from the corn wet milling industry, but the end result of that, which is glucose, can be used for uh, fermentation. Let me stop you there. What is starch, and why does it matter here? What is starch? Well, it's it's a this starch granule. Starch is made up of starch granules, which are very densely packed um, strings of glucose molecules uh, linked together by chemical bonds. So uh, a good way to to envision this is to think of a necklace, um, maybe it's a pearl necklace, it's very long, and it has um, hundreds and thousands of glucose molecules strung along this, this necklace. As it, as it arrives to a, a refinery in, um, in a corn kernel, it's very densely packed and um, so tightly packed that it's very hard to refine without some preliminary steps. So the, the objective of corn milling then is to sort of um, open up this very dense structure um, to, to allow access to the individual glucose molecules. And these very long strings, these very long necklaces are uh, successively cut into smaller and smaller pieces. So we have a continuum of 
of uh, products that can be made and um, are sold commercially, starting with, with starch and then smaller pieces um, in, in terms of food products would be maltodextrins, smaller yet would be the corn syrups, and the very smallest pieces would be um, individual glucose molecules. Okay, so we want that starch. How does that happen, John? As you do in, in many, um, in, in the first steps of, of preparing any of these nutritive sweeteners from their botanical source, you have to clean it. And then you have to begin to open up the, uh, the kernel, uh, open up the hull uh, to enable you to get what's inside the corn kernel. And so you, you put it in a big tank and you steep it for uh, 24 hours or so, um, you add a little bit of sulfur dioxide, which helps control the pH, it helps control um, any microbial growth that might begin, and it also makes the, makes the hull uh, porous and, um, and softens it up. Then you, um, you put it through a series of buffers that, little bumpers that help um, loosen the hull and knock that loose and, and knock the germ away from the starch granules. Um, we still have some protein there, and so we would uh, do some, after some grinding and screening, uh, we would do some centrifugation, and I think uh, your audience is probably familiar with that in terms of um, a high-speed spinning to separate things of different densities like, uh, like cream uh, and in milk production. So that that principle is used on, on a very large industrial scale here to separate the, the starch from some of the other ingredients. And then there is uh, some washing involved, which helps pull the protein away. And so you're left, left at that point um, with, with a pretty pure starch uh, fraction. The starch is still in, in pretty dense packets, and you need to, to get that that long necklace kind of unfolded from its neighbors and separated uh, far enough apart that it's accessible to the techniques that we use to break it into pieces. And so the technique that's used is, um, is pasting or gelatinizing the starch. And you do that by, um, by starting with a, a starch slurry, and perhaps your audience is, is kind of uh, familiar with that from from making or observing the making of gravy, where you take uh, you take starch and you you stir it into water, um, and uh, you put it in the skillet and you apply some heat to it, and if you stir it for a few minutes, then it um, it sort of goes opaque and it uh, begins to thicken. So we use that principle on an industrial scale, but uh, with one added twist, and that is that we, we pump the starch under very high pressure through a very small nozzle, um, and as the, as the starch slurry approaches the tip of the nozzle, we, we um, pipe in um, high-pressure steam. Uh, so steam at a very high temperature, and it intermixes with the starch slurry as it's coming out of the nozzle, and that pressure differential and the, and the intense heat then causes these granules to swell up to the point that water can get in there. At this point, we're ready for hydrolysis of these very long starch molecules into smaller and smaller pieces. Okay, so they're going to pull these long strands apart, and eventually it cuts those strands down enough that you end up with corn syrup. 
that corn syrup being entirely glucose, how do we get to the fructose or how do we get that fructose in there? Early chemists knew that if you, if you um, heated up glucose in solution with, with a base, something with very high pH, you could convert some of the glucose to fructose, which is a, a glucose and fructose have the same molecular formula chemical formula, but the, but the atoms are arranged a bit differently. So they're called isomers. So you've got to isomerize glucose to fructose just using base, strong base. So you take glucose, mix it with that base, or more likely in modern milling today, they mix it with an enzyme, and you convert some of that glucose, about half of it, to fructose. That glucose and fructose, they're really the same molecule, just arranged a little differently as atoms. Talk about getting a chemistry lesson today. Well, that lesson isn't quite over, but we are going to switch from John in Illinois to Ruth in Iowa for the next part. My name is Ruth MacDonald. Uh, I am a professor and chair of the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition at Iowa State University. Ruth, John's been talking about the process of getting corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup from the corn grain. I want to ask you, how's the glucose and fructose levels compare to sugar? The amount of, of glucose and fructose that's in high fructose corn, the ratio, is about the same as it is in sugar, in table sugar. Okay, so, so table sugar is mostly the molecule sucrose, which is a disaccharide of glucose and fructose linked together. And so it's about 50-50 glucose-fructose, and that's relatively the same as in high fructose corn syrup, because they didn't make it high in fructose compared to sugar, they made it high in fructose compared to corn syrup. So that's where the name comes into play, right? So everyone assumes that it's really high in fructose, but it's really just high in fructose relative to unmodified corn syrup. That is a fascinating point to me. The fact that table sugar is made up of both glucose and fructose molecules, each representing about 50% of it to give it that sweet taste. And that high fructose corn syrup comes out the same. So, so what is fructose, right? Um, is this a bad thing? Is it, is it harmful to us? Fructose is the sugar form that's found in most fruits. And something like agave syrup, which we think of as being kind of this natural sweetener, and maybe people are substituting that for high fructose corn syrup or sugar, is is higher in fructose than either glucose or than either sugar or high fructose corn syrup. So agave syrup is like 70% fructose as opposed to like 50% in high fructose corn syrup. So it, it, the the fructose part's really not the not a concern from a health perspective. So why isn't it a concern from a health perspective? Our bodies run on glucose. So we, you may have heard people talk about their blood glucose level or they get a, a bag of glucose if they're in the hospital. We use glucose as the primary carbohydrate for energy in our body. When we eat something that isn't glucose, our bodies convert it to glucose. So structurally, glucose and fructose are the same number of carbons and oxygen and hydrogens are a little bit different because of the way they're bound together, but there are the same number of, of major uh, components, carbons and, and oxygen in glucose and fructose. They're just stuck together differently in the ring. 
So when we consume fructose, our body converts it to glucose. Does our body do the same thing then when we eat what we think of as more natural fructose, like a piece of fruit? You eat the fructose and it's from a, a, an apple or from a, a piece of fruit, uh, it's going to convert it to glucose. If it's coming from corn syrup, it's going to convert it to glucose. Uh, it's the enzymes, they see the molecule, they act on them. So then whether we are consuming those glucose or fructose molecules as sugar or high fructose corn syrup, our bodies don't really know the difference? That's correct. Uh, sugar, table sugar, high fructose corn syrup, honey syrup, maple syrup, whatever you're talking about, has calories in it. And, it, and actually, they have about the same amount of calories. So it's, it's, a, it's a carbohydrate source, a, fairly, a pure carbohydrate source in that form, and it's about four calories per gram. So you have a, an equal amount of caloric value, whether it's high fructose corn syrup or syrup or any kind of sweetener, other than an artificial no, non-caloric sweetener, obviously. Um, so when you consume those products, you are consuming calories, and they are often in foods that have lower nutritional value. So uh, for example, soft drinks that are made with high fructose corn syrup are are a luxury food and not meant to be a major source of the diet because they're not going to carry a lot of nutrients along with their calories. The point being, though, that if you consume uh, sodas that have sugar, they're not any better for you than sodas that contain high fructose corn syrup. So cutting out high fructose corn syrup and throwing in an extra tablespoon of granular sugar to celebrate your health conscious decision, well, doesn't seem to mean anything. So then the question, Ruth, how did we get here? A point when one food that we use to sweeten things gets a bad rap compared to another food we use to sweeten things, when at a molecular level, it's the same. That's a good question. I think there's a lot of pieces to this discussion, one of which is that uh, corn, which is the source of corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup, has been genetically modified for, you know, 25 years or so in our country. And there's the assumption that that somehow makes high fructose corn syrup a bad thing. That's one perspective. Um, there is, of course, no evidence that genetically modified crops or ingredients derived from genetically modified crops have any health risk to humans or animals. Uh, so that's a misconception. But I think that that plays into this discussion in some people's minds. Um, I think the the other part of it is just a lot of misunderstanding about the wording. Uh, like we started the conversation, it's high fructose. So that just the, the high there makes it sound like, oh, it's, it's bad because it's too high. It's, it's something abnormal. But that is literally the way it was defined from a, from a chemical perspective when the product was developed because it, it's corn syrup that's higher in fructose. Uh, so had we named it corn sugar maybe early on, maybe people would have said, oh, it's just you know sugar from corn. There's a lot of just misinformation. We have lots of access to people that have issues about food, and, and it makes it challenging for people to sort through all that. And I get it. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom. I, I've raised two kids, and, and I don't want to give them products that are going to make them sick or long-term health risks. And it's hard if you don't know the science 
to just default and say, well, you know, those people say it's not good, so I'll just choose not to to buy that product. Uh, without knowing the science, that may be what you decide to do. Uh, it, it's it's also a little bit uh, disconcerting that companies will take advantage of that and, and market their products with that information on it. Marketing has come up for me in the past, too, as a connection to why people think one might be better than another food when really there isn't a difference. Then, Ruth, the question we've asked in the past is, what's a person to do? They're told this might not be great for you, and you and others say there isn't really any difference at all, so don't worry about it. How does a parent like you said, a mom like yourself, try to figure out what's just hype in marketing and what actually might be truth? I think it's important to have a wide variety of influences on your information, right? So if you're going back to the same place every time for your information, uh, you're not getting maybe the whole picture. I think websites such as Best Food Facts, you know, on the GMO side, the GMO Answers website, where you have scientists and faculty, you know, people at academics that who are not telling a product, we're just trying to convey information. Uh, if, if you can use those sources to balance out the other information that you're getting, it's very easy to sell fear. And it's very easy to, uh, like I said, make the assumption that, well, if there's any risk, if there's anything that I'm not sure about, I'll just say no. I'll just, I don't want to get that. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try that. I'm going to avoid it. Um, and, and that's certainly a person's choice. Um, we're very blessed in North America in general that we have fairly good incomes and people are generally able to make decisions about their food. And part of that is because our food system and our food industry has been uh, very good about making food inexpensive. Part of that is this technology, right? Because we can uh, develop products and, and modify things so that the cost of food is not high. But that has, you know, surprisingly come with the backlash of, well, it's too processed and you're doing too good of a job of making it cheap. Uh, we want it we want it to be all natural and all local and, and no chemicals and, and all of that. So we're kind of going through a different phase now where for many years science was good and science was, was valued and having technology even in our food system was seen as okay. And now we're going the back way and we're saying, well, I don't want any science in my food and I don't want chemically sounding things that I can't pronounce in my product, even though most of those things that they're concerned about are nothing to be worried about. So next time you head for the large skim vanilla bean frappe extra whip, well, it would seem you can worry less about what they're using to add that touch of sweetness to it and worry more if they're trying to make you pay more for it just because they're using a different kind of sugar. Who really cares about what you eat? You do. And these 200-plus food experts. BestFoodFacts.org connects you with leading university experts on food and farming in North America. With over 500 questions answered and new content weekly, it's a dependable source available across all social channels. Get the details you want from credible people who've dedicated their entire careers to the study of food. You care about what you eat, so take time to digest the facts. Visit bestfoodfacts.org today. 
Next time on Food Bubble, we head into the grocery store and down the dairy aisle. Whether you choose the regular milk that might be skim or 2% or full fat, or whether you pick up the same that carries an organic label. And a question I get asked a lot is why is organic so much more money? In my grocery store, it's almost double the price. Is that fair money? The farmer isn't getting double. It's about 30 cents a liter. So about a yeah, 40% increase. So where is that money going? That's next time on Food Bubble. Food Bubble is produced by Jess Campbell, Jess Nicholson, and our newest recruit, Ashley Ferrero. If you happen to be listening to this via our website, you can always subscribe through the Apple Podcast app or Google Podcast app on your smartphone. That way, the newest episode is automatically downloaded to your device when we post it. And if you've got a friend or family member that you think would be interested in this, well, don't be afraid to help them along and get them started with their favorite podcasting app. You just have to search for Food Bubble. Have a great week, and we'll be back with a new episode in seven days.